Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Part 8, Comedy! Hello and welcome to the 8th part of the podcast miniseries 80 Years of DC Comics presented by Pop Culture Affidavit which is part of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. I'm your host Tom Panneries and the purpose of these episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC Comics has produced in its 80 years history but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superheroes as well as stories that don't usually wind up on a top 10 list. Last time around, I looked at stories starring funny animals, and this time around, I'm going to keep things in the same realm and turn my attention to comedy. Comedy, in a sense, has always been an essential element to comics. Hence, comedy and comics. After all, we still refer to the daily newspaper comics, most of which feature humor as funnies. And DC's earliest publication was New Fun Comics number 1, although the company would eventually strike gold with the adventures of superheroes. The funnies were there from the beginning. For example, New Fun number 7 and 8 had humorous strips on their covers in an attempt to attract kids, and the compilation books that typified early DC comics and a lot of early comic books were a mix of humor, adventure, and other stories. I downloaded a public domain copy of New Fun number 5, and while the scan is a little bit hard to read at times, I just wanted to walk through a couple of examples of what I came across. On page 4, there's a four-panel strip named Pinkus, in which a black kid in a hat and overalls paints a barber pole all red, much to the chagrin of a barber. This, he appears in other comics as an example of the way well, black people were often drawn in the 1930s, which does look a little bit like blackface. It's something that isn't just in this comic, but in a lot of the cartoon entertainment of the time. And I think most famously, uh, one example of that would be the Looney Tunes shorts that have examples of that. And a comic like that is not necessarily reprinted very often these days. It's rightfully considered offensive, and they're not ones that must be swept under the rug, per se, but they rightfully have their place in our culture as something to be studied as we look at the anthropology and sociological context of our popular culture, especially when it comes to race relations. Less offensive than that that one strip and, and story is a three-panel strip on page eight where a character named Sonny smokes a pipe, gets sick, and then decides to switch to a pipe that blows bubbles. There's also some longer strips and single-panel ones reminiscent of the type of stuff you'd see in The New Yorker. I personally like the one that shows an eight angry percussionist and a trumpeter whispering to a flautist, uh, we better move the boss cut Joe's salary again. That's what existed through a lot of the 1930s and into the 1940s, and then superheroes kind of took over for quite a bit, and you had you had a run of funny animals comics as well. But I'm going to move now into the 1950s uh, and a humor and a humor book that actually did have a good run. Sugar and Spike was the work of Sheldon Meyer, who, according to Les Daniels, wrote and illustrated the duo's adventure from 1956 to 1971. The premise was that the two babies communicated in baby talk, which translate were tra- was translated for the readers daniels says the whimsical highly unusual comic book managed to generate an amazing number of variations on what seemed a limited theme and earned real affection from its audience during the years when superheroes were taking on an ever-increasing burden of angst brett and i read lobsters away a story that first appeared in sugar and spike number three 
and was collected in the greatest 1950s stories ever told. Sugar and Spike in Lobster's Away. Lobster is very good, sir. Fine, I think I'll have that. But dear, you've never eaten lobster. There's always a first time. I'll try it. What does GLX mean? I think he's making a baby noise. Olds? Mm -hmm. Very good, sir. I don't know why you had to get so fancy all of a sudden. I mean, why lobster of all things? Just felt like doing something different, hmm? Eek! What's that? This is the lobster, sir. We, we always show it to the customer before we cook it. Is this one satisfactory? But it's alive. Certainly, sir. That's why he'll know it's fresh. Hi, kiddo. Hi. So he can hear the, the lobster and he can talk to the animals. Is he like a superhero or something? Mm, I think he just... I think they can kind of... I don't know if they have powers. I guess their powers is they can talk to the, the lobster and talk to each other, but like through thoughts. I think they're supposed to be silly though. Ah. Okay, go ahead. Take it away. I uh, changed my mind. Very good, sir. What are you? I'm a lobster. What are you? Meow! What happened? I think something's wrong with the little boy at that table. For goodness sake, make him stop crying. I can't. He wants. Well, get him. Give him whatever he wants as long as he stops crying. I never was so embarrassed in my life. Let's not talk about it. Oh, what did he do? He took the lobster as a pet. Oh, he took the lobster as a pet. What's he saying? I never had a pet lobster before. I never had a little boy either. Later. Hey, sugar. Guess what I got? Measles. What's measles? It's a disease. I'm not even born. Look, a pet lobster. Her name is Alice. Eek! Take that ugly, ugly thing away from me. Shh. She's very sensitive. Don't be silly. Lobsters can't understand baby talk. Baby lobsters can. And I happen to be a baby lo lobster. Eek! It talks. Certainly I talk. My parents can't understand a word I say, of course. Neither can ours. But all un babies understand baby talk, no matter what kind of babies they are. Polly, I didn't know that. I didn't either, till I talked to Alice. Say, I wonder if you kids would do me a big favor. Sure, just name it. Glad to. Later. They were playing here in the yard, and they simply disappeared. Who's that? Is that a policeman they're yeah. talking to? Okay. Now don't get excited. We've got the whole police force working on it. But they've been gone for hours. There they are. You found them? Where were they? Ten blocks from here, by the waterfront. Waterfront? What on earth were they doing there? I don't know. I found them standing at dock, waving goodbye at something they dropped. For goodness sake, the lobster. But dear, how do you suppose that they knew that lobsters belong in the water? Don't ask me. I told you a hundred times. I can't 
figure it out. Now go to sleep. Oh, so what happened? So, um, the lobster, see how he said, if you kids would do me a big favor, mm -hmm. he wanted to go back to the water because they didn't cook him. Instead, they gave it to the little kid. Oh, uh, okay. And, lobster, and he told them to put him, set him free in okay. the water. Did you like that story? Yeah. Next up is a comic from the 1960s that is another source of comedy. This is The Adventures of Jerry Lewis. The book started off as The Adventures of Martin and Lewis and came out around the same time as a Bob Hope comic. After Martin and Lewis split, it was renamed The Adventures of Jerry Lewis and ran for quite a while. And I'll get to that comic right after these messages. Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines and unarmed combat forms. Her canary cry, when properly focused, is powerful powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. I freaking fell in love with Black Canary, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. And we are back. For this next section of the podcast, I'm going to jump ahead to the mid-1960s in a comic book that ran for nearly 20 years and lasted 124 issues, which is The Adventures of Jerry Lewis. Uh, the title started as The Adventures of Martin and Lewis, but at some point along the line, Martin and Lewis broke up, and they just followed The Adventures of Jerry. I'm taking a look at issue 86. Joining me for this segment is someone with whom I've podcasted numerous times about a number of topics, including comics, but never is something as out there as this. He is the host <laughs> or co-host of a number of podcasts, including Views from the Long Box, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Tales, from the, Tales of the Justice Society of America, and Comics Monthly Monday. Please welcome Michael Bailey to the show. Yeah, this is certainly one of the more bizarre books I have ever been asked to uh, to come on and talk about. Um, it's it's actually kind of, like like you suggested it, and at first I'm like, what am I going to bring to this? And I'm like, ah, screw it. It's a DC humor book. Mm -hmm. I've never read one of those. So yeah, and that's uh, that that that's good enough for me. Neither have I. What I've been doing for this series of episodes is I've been trying to spend as the least amount of money as possible. So. The greatest why I keep bringing up stuff that's in the greatest 1950s stories ever told because I haven't owned the trade. Or I will grab stuff out of the 50 cent bin, which to me is like, okay, 50 cents for an old issue of you know, I'll be doing Western somewhere down the line. So Jonah Hex or something. Um, I actually had to pay a couple of dollars for this. I, I could not find a CBR of this. That, that's it, weird. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was I'm I'm not as good friends with Tor as everybody else, but um Tor and I broke up a couple years ago, yes. uh, so. But um, but yeah, so I, I I didn't pay a lot of money for this, but it was it was more in shipping than it was in the actual auction. But at the same time, it was just like, wow, I actually have to go and seek out a Jerry Lewis comic. But I'm sure that there are people who 
collect those. Um, uh, I'm telling you right now, uh, I don't. God, it was either 2005 or 2006, but may have been 2007. Dragon cons are now starting to blur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was working for Titans, so it was one of the years Rachel and I were working for uh, one of the booths to get a free ticket. Uh So then we just had to worry about, you know, money for the con itself. And I was uh, working, you know, and it's like I'm in my element. So, you know, it's retail and it's comics. It's it's like kind of what I was born to do. Yeah. And this guy came up and all he wanted was Jerry Lewis comics. And he bought every single one the booth had. Wow. Uh, And it was just, you know, just a young guy, guy, younger, younger looking than I was at the time. And I was just like, "What? What's the appeal?" He goes, "They're they're funny. They're 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 kind of weird, and you know nobody collects them." And I'm just like, "Okay, so you're like six degrees away from being a hipster, but you know you're, <laughs> you're paying money, so I'm not going to insult you." But yeah, no, these the weird thing about DC Silver Age stuff is that you know they did have like a number of genres behind superheroes. You know, superheroes get the the main focus. You know? Yeah. They're the ones that people mostly talk about. But you got to think about the fact, and it's why I love DC Comics, uh, is that, you know, they had Bob Hope. They had yeah. Jerry Lewis. And it's mm-hmm. just like, and that was a thing. Yeah. Like, like they, they must have sold well because, you know, Jerry Lewis lasted how many issues? 124. I mean, so there you go. I mean, yeah. a book a book lasts 20 nowadays, and we consider it a success. So, yeah. And, you know, we forget... Um... Because documentaries on the subject kind of paint the 1950s as this sort of dire, horrible time for comics. And the Comics Code Authority did not, you know, help. But at the same time, DC had to keep itself afloat. And mm-hmm. and you had Jerry Lewis and you had romance comics and you had funny animals. And, you know, if not for them you wouldn't be reading Batman. Yeah. I mean, like, like sugar and spike. Yeah. Went like 80 some issues. And now they're about to do a new modern take on sugar and spike (laughs) where they're teenage. It's like sugar and spike meets the Hardy boys and Nancy drew. Mm. And I read that and I went, there's an audience for that. It's not me, but (laughs) there's an audience for that. So, all right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, give a plot synopsis. Then Mike and I are going to talk about the issue. So here we go with The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, number 86. Okay, so The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, number 86, came out on November 19, 1964, and was cover dated February 1965. And this information comes courtesy of Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover price was $0.12, cents, and in case you need to place it within DC history, this is right around the middle of the Silver Age. Our cover, which is not credited, uh, although Bob Oxner did the interior wor- artwork, so it very well may be him, shows Jerry standing at a carnival pizza stand, which is called the Tower of Pizza, and has a giant tower of pizza on it. Because, of course, it does. And the pizza chef is incredulously saying, he wants 30 f- a 30-foot pizza with bananas. What kind of friend you got? A gorilla? And, of course, the joke is on him because climbing the Tower of Pizza and being shot at by men in airplanes is a giant gorilla. Specifically, it's King Clonk the Killer Gorilla. Our story is written by Arnold Drake with art by Bob Oxner. And, a, and on page one, we get an intro. 
How would you like a giant gorilla to go ape over you? Think it would be fun to be a chum of a chimp? Well, just watch the monkey business Jerry gets into and he becomes the buddy of King Clonk the Killer Gorilla. So a guy named P.T., who I'm assuming is supposed to be a not-so-subtle nod to P.T. Barnum, is leading a jungle expedition, and he complains that the porters are slowing up the safari. He tells his assistant Harry to tell them to hurry up, and Harry does, telling them to get the lead out, a command that follows literally down the chain to a varied degrees of success and confusing until we get to the back of the line and Jerry Lewis, who is weakly holding a huge box. What's Jerry doing in the jungles of Africa? Well, as he explains, he took one of those fly now pay later trips but he couldn't pay later the the airline offered to fly him back for free but he couldn't get the wings to flap fast enough <laughs> pt tells harry to pitch the tents and yell harry yells pitch tents the command once again goes down the line and everyone pitches their tents at harry we then get to the main part of the story which is basically a parody of the classic film king kong pt is looking for the giant gorilla king clunk after catching Jerry building a hotel instead of pitching a tent like everyone else, he sends him on a mission to find King Clonk. This leads Jerry to a nearby village where two natives are working on a lug potion, mainly because the usual plague gears and death dolls have gotten boring. They try to sell the love potion to Jerry, but he loves everyone. They offer him a friendship potion, saying that men will warm toward him. Jerry tells some joke about a hot foot, and the natives decide he's pretty stupid. But then Jerry mentions King Clonk, and they fall to their knees and explain that they worship Clonk. The native medicine man gives Jerry the friendship potion with the hopes that it might aid in Clonk's capture, and Jerry heads into the jungle, running into all sorts of movie television literature references, including Tarzan and the MGM lion, and finds our gorilla. He douses the gorilla with the potion, and they become fast friends. As Clonk is palling around with Jerry, and Jerry's trying not to get crushed, P.T. shows up and says he's going to take Clonk back to America. Part 2 is entitled The King Comes to Town and opens with P.T. flying first class on a private airliner, complete with a stewardess in his lap, and Jerry being forced to sit on Clonk's belly while the big ape is kept aloft by two giant blimps. Clonk is a huge pop culture sensation and is made the centerpiece of a gaudy variety show. Jerry, for some reason, wears a ridiculous military uniform because it's an important night or something. I didn't necessarily get that and then there's all sorts of singing dancing and insanity with clonk followed by jerry's role in the show which is sweeping up after everyone pt's next scheme is not to just to put the gorilla on display but to control him he practices hypnotism on an elephant and gets ready to hypnotize clonk part three of the story is the king flips his crown it begins with jerry who's more or less been fired by pt giving clonk a sad goodbye P.T. hypnotizes the gorilla, but instead of controlling him, it sends Clonk into a rage, and he goes rampaging across the city. Across town at a donut shop, Jerry tries to drown his sorrows with half a donut, not realizing what's happened, and not realizing everyone's looking for him because he's the best friend of a gorilla. Clonk's rampage includes such acts as taking a bath in a pool, using an elm tree as a, to scrub his back, and then eating uh, the banana split sign off of the Benny's Banana Splits restaurant. The police decide to go after Clonk, and in order to do this, they decide to don gorilla costumes. They pile into the Jeep of Officer Schultz, the backseat of which, by the way, has a laundry bag full of curtains that his wife keeps telling him to get washed. They have a command to shoot the gorilla on sight. Clonk is at a local amusement park playing with the roller coaster like it's a Hot Wheels track. And when the police approach him, he picks up the jeep and puts them on the track. And then, as they go on an upswing, Clonk tears off part of the track and the car goes flying into the air. The police captain suggests using the curtains as parachutes, but much to their dismay, the curtains are, well, they're lace curtains. 
They're about to shoot to kill when Jerry shows up and says he'll do his best to calm Klonk down. So he does so by getting a giant funhouse mirror so the gorilla can see him. Klonk picks up him up, gives him a big kiss, and they all decide to send him back to his home island with a super enlarged photo of Jerry to keep with him, even though it's a picture of Jerry Lewis as a baby, which is basically a baby with the face of Jerry Lewis, because according to Jerry Lewis, that's the only good picture his mom ever took of him. All right, so... um... I'm going to be polite and let my guest go first. So what did you think about this one? Uh, I am actually, I wouldn't consider myself like a rabid fan, but my friend, a good friend of mine from, that I hung out with in my early 20s uh, named Ryan loved Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. I mean, he loved the Marx Brothers too, but he's the one that sat me down and showed me the the two or three Jerry Lewis movies I've ever seen in my life. One was called Ladies Man. Mm-hmm which has one of the funniest scenes I have ever seen of, and it's just, it's physical comedy and it's him working with this guy and there's a hat and it's just, it's hysterical. Uh, another was called artists and models, which was actually a 1955 movie. Uh, it was a Martin and Lewis film mm-hmm. that, uh, if you, uh, this is going to, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but if you, if you listen to early episodes of views from the long box, You'll hear a man going, uh, what have you done? Nothing. Something about comics. You have bad dreams about comic books. Yeah, I remember that's that. A, that's a quote from Artists and Models. Oh, wow. Because Jerry Lewis plays like this uh, kind of, I guess we would call him autistic now, mm-hmm. but uh, like like uh, you know, a man-child that, yeah. lo- that has these dreams about comic book type things and he loves comic books and uh dean martin is a is a is a painter and he starts doing this comic book shirley mclean's in it as as battle huh and there's a scene and there's a scene where it's essentially since it was 1955 it really plays off of the wortham and the uh seduction of the innocent there's there's this whole subtext of our comics ruining our children Huh. Uh, and there is a scene where Jerry Lewis says, and I quote, comics will make you retarded. Uh, <laughs> I've not been able to find a good, clean audio of that because I'd love to throw that into something. But uh, so going into this, it, it wasn't as weird because it's not like I seek out Jerry Lewis, but I don't shy away from Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And, you know, Knowing what I know about, I know more about the man personally because uh, mm-hmm. I've seen several really good documentaries on his life. Uh, but this was this was your typical Jerry Lewis story. He's he's a man child, uh, kind of a simpleton who happens onto a weird situation. In this case, we have you know you know a King Kong type character. Yeah, and you know somebody is taking advantage of him, and then they try to get rid of him, and that goes badly. Uh, I think the funniest part of this for me were all the jokes I didn't get. Because mm-hmm. there is a sequence about, you know, in the first part where he runs Tarzan. Yes. And then he runs against Stanley Livingston. Yes. And then the Metro Golden Mare Lion shows up. Yeah. And it's, and I'm like, you know, I, I was thinking that if I was a kid at this time period, I'd probably think that was really funny. Yeah. This is the family guy. Of the 1960s, it very much is. I mean, and 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 it's it, and you know, I didn't think it was as funny as if I lived back then, or if I was more into humor comics. Yeah, 
Um, but it was kind of endearing too the relationship he had with the uh, with King Clonk. Mm-hmm. Uh, was kind of like when they got separated. I was actually a little bummed out. <laughs> it was kind of weird. I was like, no, you got to get them back together. And watching the kids, uh, like in the second part, with with like the the kids doing the dance and yes, the, you know the you know we got Khrushchev in here. <laughs> the, we have to get her. Was it we have we will have a an ape, ape. twice as big as the Americans by nineteen seventy five. Yeah, and then you know Jerry Lewis is in weird outfits. I mean, yeah. this is this is quintessential what this title was. And because of that, I think I enjoyed it more than I would have like 10, 15 years ago when I probably would have leafed through this and went, oh, this is stupid. I was actually kind of engaged. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's not, a, you know, it's not like I have like reams and reams of notes. In fact, I've pretty mm-hmm. much exhausted everything. <laughs> uh, I want to say I just I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. It is fun. And and um there's obviously there's a number you can pick from, and and I chose this one specifically because there is a Batman and Robin one, um, which I I, I wasn't looking for because I wanted to do something that didn't have a superhero guest star in it. I mm-hmm. honestly picked this because like ooh a gorilla, it's like yeah, every DC comic has to have a gorilla at one point, well, but of course yeah, but <laughs> the plot the plot is inconsequential. It's a King Kong parody, so that that was the other reason I was like, all right, this will be mm-hmm. easy for me to. You know, this will be easy for me to to um, engage. You know, like because I because I know the plot of the movie. Um, but yeah, so I found humor in just some of the little bits. The the bit that opens the the thing with where he's like, you know, um, tell him to get the lead out, and they just basically go down the line with each person shouting, "Hey, get the lead out! Hey, get the lead out!" And then he's like, you know, pitch tents, pitch tents, and they all throw the tents at the guy, and he's like, yeah. not at me. <laughs> and some of the some of the sight gags are funny. Um, Jerry building the hotel mm-hmm. when he was supposed to be pitching that, and the the dialogue between the two natives, where he's like, the medicine man's mixing up. He's like, you mixing up. Uh, he mixed it for the tourist trade. He's like, you know, I'm 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 tired of playing. My old man used to cook up this one. He's like, did your pop really believe in that joke? He's like, yeah, but don't ask me why. He tried the love potion on Mama after sneaking home from an all night poker game. She broke a spear over his head. You know, this is not how natives <laughs> talk in these movies, <laughs> or like you know what you expect. <laughs> and and there and there's the comedy. Yeah, and 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 I got it. It's just like watching them talk like normal people that's yeah. and then trying to get one over on the 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 stupid americans mm-hmm. i mean that's i could see that happening in like live action like they, i could see this playing out unfortunately did. the the natives would be white with blackface but yeah, that's entirely beside the point <laughs> and it's it's a trident it's a tried and true joke though because there there was a they've done that before um i've seen it in other things actually one of my all-time favorite far side cartoons is a shot from inside a hut and there's two uh anthropologists in in you know pith helmets coming up the beach toward the hut and the natives are screaming anthropologists anthropologists and they're scrambling around to hide their vcrs and their televisions and stuff (laughs) it's, it's brilliant um and there's a simpsons bit from one of the later seasons, well, later seasons before I stopped watching, it's probably around season 11 or 12, where um, they're in China 
And one guy, one Chinese communist officer says to another, you know, you can't put that table there. It's bad feng shui. And the other one says, I thought feng shui was something we made up to sell, sell bad end tables to the Americans. <laughs> back, back, when the, back when that show was starting its decline, where the plot of the, the overall episode was pretty crap, but there were still some really, really funny jokes in there. But yeah, I have the same thing as you. Is like, I, I came in, I, you know, I always found it ridiculous that there was a Jerry Lewis comic. But again, I was not raised in the 50s and 60s. So, mm-hmm. you know, who am I to judge? And you're right. 10, 15 years ago, I would have been like, I would have been like that kid on the internet who would look at a 50s Batman comic and be like, oh, this is so lame. You know, that sort of very, very immature approach to things like, you know, I can't be cool. I have to be cool. So I won't like the comic like this, but this was this was pretty fun. It was, it, it's pretty well written. It's very very silly, but it makes no bones about the fact you have the police go after the gorilla wearing gorilla suits. Yeah, and the guy's wife's lace curtains are in the back. I mean, it's just it's total just silliness, and 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 that that's what I. That's what I like about it. I mean, to the point where the last scene is Klonk heading home with like a pic- giant picture of Jerry Lewis as a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, it, you know, it's just the thing that I've, I, I've, I've realized lately uh, since I'm, I'm, I'm at another point where modern DC Comics is just not speaking to me in any kind of fundamental way. You and me both. Uh, but I, I think of how much I love the company in total. Mm-hmm. And how much I and then I was looking at its history recently. I found out that uh, in the late seventies and early eighties, they actually put out, and I didn't realize I had one. But uh, there there was this uh, publisher called Fireside that put out in the seventies like a bunch of Marvel trade paperbacks, essentially. Okay. Uh, there was a Hulk one. They're the ones who did Origins of Marvel. Oh, okay. Of Origins. But what I found out is like towards the end of the seventies, they put out three DC books. Hmm. And one was called Heartthrobs, the other was Mysteries in Space, and the third one is America at War. And they're all edited by Michael Uslin. And if if you have any familiarity (coughs) with the history of the Batman films, you know the name Michael Uslin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized when I, uh, because I had the romance one for years and just didn't realize it. I checked it out of the library in 1997, forgot to take it back packed it in a box and then three years later i'm in another apartment i unpack it and i realize i still had it <laughs> um but i i realized you know in, in in getting these books and kind of looking at them is that you know superheroes will always be my bread and butter and i will never be one of those guys that goes out and looks for an entire run of jerry lewis yeah but i appreciate the fact that there was a time uh bef- before i was collecting comics really where superheroes were just one genre. They were the dominant genre at different periods. But there was a point where the idea... I mean, you wouldn't have a Seth Rogen comic these days. You know? No. You know, and, and it, it'd be really simple. It'd be like him getting high every issue. Mm. So, you know, you all want to go get some beers? I mean, it would, it'd be kind of like that. But, you know, we we don't live in that time period now. But in the 60s, you know, where, where Jerry Lewis was insanely popular. Yeah. OMG. I mean, you know, most people think of him as the telethon guy now. But 
you know, his movies were huge. And he was, you know, the comedic star of, like, the decade. Yeah. Uh, especially when he broke off on his own after he and Dean Martin stopped working together. So, yeah. I mean, I just, I, it's like this book is just like, yeah, it was fun to read. But more than anything, I appreciate what it represents for DC's history. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's the 80th anniversary of you, as you've been celebrating. Yeah. So it's, it's like the perfect time to really kind of revel in this sort of thing. Yeah. That's what I've been, that's why I've been having fun with this because it's, it's a, because any kind of lazy look at DC will just kind of focus on the superheroes and, and, mm-hmm. you and I have nothing wrong with superhero comics is the reason we've been reading comics for so long, but, um, you know, humor comics still exist. Mm, Bongo's uh, pretty yeah. big with them right now. Bongo, since books, yeah, and SpongeBob. Some sections of which, by the way, are uh, done by Jerry Ordway. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like yeah. all of the people that we love to read in the eighties and nineties are now like yeah. working for Archie and Bongo Comics and that kind of thing, uh, which is at on one hand sad, but on the other hand, God, thank God they're getting work. Well, I was yeah. that was something I, I noticed last episode when I was recording about the Looney Tunes comic and Mike DiCarlo, who was an mm-hmm. inker um, for decades, is getting work doing pencils and inks, uh, very cartoonish. Obviously, pencils and inks there, and John Costanza is still lettering that book um, because they're uh, they're going for a specific comic book looking classic comic book looking feel for that book as opposed to lettering by comic craft or whoever's doing lettering now for uh for the majority of dc's books but yeah you're right there's just it's um and and uh i picked jerry lewis over bob hope because this is the first name that popped into my head but bob hope was the other big comedic star mm-hmm. of that era and and they would headline it's rare that we go to the movies to see the new blank, the insert actor here movie. Yeah. We were doing that for a little while with Schwarzenegger, Stallone and that sort of thing. But Jim Carrey was kind of yeah, in that Jim too. Car- like you go see the latest Jim Carrey flick. That might've been, he might've been the last one, honestly. Mm-hmm. Cause now, you, now you might, now you say that with regard to directors especially yeah. since the nineties and we came of age in the nineties and you would go and see the latest Tarantino flick or the, or the latest, um, a comedy wise Judd Apatow movie. Yeah. Uh, which will be train wreck. Um, if, if you're listening to this when it comes out in 2015, uh, but yeah, you don't have, there's Jim Carrey is probably the closest thing we've had to a Jerry Lewis in our generation, especially mm-hmm. with Jim Carrey's type of humor. I was trying to find a clip to play before I came, you know, after I came back from the trailer and it's been very hard because so much of Jerry Lewis's comedy is physical. Yeah. The, the, the scene in ladies man that I was talking about before mm-hmm. was, uh, Jerry Lewis is like the valet at this women's sorority house or mm-hmm. like, a, like, a, or it's a, uh, what, what do you want to call it? What, what would you call that type of house where a bunch of people live there? Boarding house. Boarding house. Uh, and like this tough guy comes to pick up one of the women and he's kind of physically, you know, intimidating Jerry. But at one point he's, he's helping the guy get his hat on mm-hmm. And it just devolves into this thing where by the end, the, the tough guy's crying because the hat's like in ruins. 
because he's just completely torn it apart. It's like, no, don't do that. Don't, no, no, no. And you can't play that as a as an audio no. clip because you don't see. It's all in what Jerry Lewis is doing, but it's also in what this actor is doing with his face. Yes. So it's just like, and I remember seeing it for the first time, and I'm just dying. And, you know, yeah. I was like a cynical 21-year, 22, 23-year-old at the time, but I still, I was just like, ah, like it was like the funniest thing ever. Yeah. Well, it's because... We grew up on Roadrunner cartoons and mm-hmm. things that then and Bugs Bunny cartoons and things that required for a cartoon was a lot of physical humor as well. Um, and sight gags and stuff like that in a way that, um, you know, in cartoons it's still there, but I don't know if teenagers get it as much as they do as, as they would. To be fair, I, I think there is a lot of that in, in shows like SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of physical comedy because animation went from having like a story editor and that being kind of what ruled the roost and it, it changed. Marty Pascal talked about this in an interview where it changed fundamentally where it was it was developed by the creative vision behind the series. Mm-hmm. So you have the guy that created SpongeBob SquarePants and it's all storyboarding now. It's not like writing a script. It's, 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 it's all visual. Yeah. So you have to do weird things and you have to have physical comedy. Uh, you know, there, there, there's something with the dialogue, but mostly it's, it's, you know, it's a kid's cartoon. Oh yeah. Let's let's face it. We're not, (laughs) you know, it's, it's funny. I was at trivia a couple nights ago, like a couple weeks ago. And the final question, the, the four part question that, that ended the, the, that particular thing was, you know, it was a SpongeBob SquarePants thing. <laughs> and we actually got three out of the four because my wife watches a ton of SpongeBob SquarePants. So it's really um, kind of weird. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, I've you're talking to somebody who has a seven year old. No, that's true. That's true. Who's, yeah. He's he's not watching SpongeBob as much. He's been watching Teen Titans Go and The Amazing World of Gumball. Which is oh, God, I love both show. of those shows. Uh, did you see the eighties one of Gumball? Uh no, not yet. He hasn't this, watched it in a couple of days. It was these two guys who played tennis that Oh was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I was just Where he keeps off taking that one. off the sweater. Yeah. And and Gumball's just like, I want nothing to do with this. And they keep forcing the point. <laughs> well, our dad's just gonna shut down your school. No, my the the one of the moments where I'm like this show transcends anything was the it was the episode where Larry quits his job, and the town devolves into an apocalyptic wasteland within 15 minutes, <laughs> and the family goes out. You know the scene I'm talking about. They get attacked by a gang of people from the school, the principal, the guidance counselor. Mm-hmm. It begins with a reference to the warriors. Mm-hmm. And it ends with the mother in triumph doing the sand people. <laughs> I was doubled over. Oh my god! My wife's all-time favorite episode is the one where they play paintball. Yes. Oh god, that's funny. But anyway, um, before we before we head out on this though, um, and I and I go to my my next segment. I, we should take a look at least a couple of these ads here oh, because God, yes. these are some vintage comic ads and some of them are very interesting. The 
inside cover front cover has the salute to courage which is this whole kennedy tribute thing yeah it's really like like i saw that and it was uh you know these kids talking about this uh it's a book that won the pulitzer prize yeah yeah he he wrote it and and, and the glow from the fire can truly yeah. light the world I mean, it's just like what i guess you know it's just one of those things where if it was something to do with like the challenger we probably feel Mm-hmm. more to it but it's you know it's jfk yeah. you know all we know about that is a punchline at this point so i was trying to figure out the artist uh i am terrible with artists yeah. so uh it just though i i will say this that that second to last panel that woman looks insane <laughs> <I know. laughs> the dialogue in there does something like crazy <laughs> it's like some step of stepford wives crap uh moving along a page we have a really we have a couple of uh we have trick the trick track transagram trick track cars which is basically like those cars you could i guess they you would wind them up and they'd go and you'd set the tracks up so that they didn't you know hopefully didn't end up under the the kitchen well, cabinets or something. Well, before that, you had the half page ad of oh, yeah. 25 years of Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder. Yes. Uh, which includes a complete newspaper thriller never pre- before published in any magazine. Yeah. That was just like, like, I actually, I was like scrolling through the, the book reading it and I saw that it was just like, ooh. Yeah, like I kind of want to buy that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, and then you flip the page and there's a huge ad for... Um, the the uh the Superman eighty page giant it says issue six but they're like the first eighty page giant Superman annual so I guess this is when the annual no about that um John Wilson has a better handle on this era than I do mm-hmm. but all of them were huge yeah I mean going back to the first one I've got a I've got a couple from this era one thanks to uh, uh Bob Fisher thanks Bob really mm-hmm. appreciate you giving me that um. I love these things. Uh, I love I just, these covers. Just the weirdness of it. Bizarro yeah. Superman and Bizarro Lois Lane. The creature of a thousand disguises. Yeah. Where it looks like a, it's a building. The thing that stalks Smallville. Yeah. The hyper menace from Krypton. Which, Monster is a, which is a great drawing. I love that drawing in the center of the hyper menace from <laughs> Krypton. So, uh, no, it, it's funny because I've, I've been reading some, some late 60s Justice League recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Denny O'Neill's run is insane. Uh, <laughs> but the one thing that I noticed is, man, the house ads are always awesome. Yes. It's, and this issue is no exception. It really isn't. It's got yeah. a two-page splash of new from Mark's motor. The real-life features on the world's biggest road racing line. Yeah. So These, these things were popular up through the time we were kids mm-hmm. Tycho used to put them out uh, something I have no uh, connection to but I'm sure somebody knows who Whitey Ford is he was a pitcher for the New York Yankees back his heyday was the 50s from what I understand but he would have been he would have said name he was, he was on those Yankees teams with like Mickey Mantle Oh, okay. So he was, you know, and and Whitey, I think he was very, very well known. Up, not as big as Mantle, but the name was recognizable enough. So, 
He's advertising Matchbox cars. With the Matchbox box. Yes. Uh, or the, the old school box, which I, I really only learned about from watching Pawn Stars on the History <laughs> Channel. Because somebody brought in like an entire... There's a year cutoff point with Matchbox where before that the stuff is like outrageously expensive. And after that it's like moderately expensive. Huh. So. Uh, yeah, it's like the the weird collecting things you find out watching that show. Hmm. So, um, there's a I'm not going to read the letter from Jerry, uh, which might not actually be from Jerry, but it's uh, it's basically the letter column uh, mm-hmm. where he's but he's reading it as as if he's answering his fan mail. Yeah, I think that's I the best that. way to interpret that. And I really, I just. I I got bored of it like three paragraphs. Yeah, I didn't finish it either. Um, Let's see. Uh, There's a silly putty ad. There is. There is. Of course, there is. There is a subscription ad with Jerry Lewis in it. Yeah, and think about this. This is the subscription ad. So this, it's a holiday offer. So Santa's on it. Yeah. These are the big books they're they're pushing. Superboy, Rob Kelly. Take note, Aquaman. Uh, Lois Lane, Jerry Lewis, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. I guess these were the big sellers of the time? I mean, we're smack in the middle of Silver Age. The, the new look Batman's already out. Mm-hmm. We're, we're about a year. This was 60, I think it was 65. So this this was... A year before the television show. A year series. before the television show. Superman would have been... Would have been big. They probably they might have put Jerry Lewis in this particular specific ad because it's the Jerry Lewis comic. More than likely, Aquaman and Mira have this look on their faces like you've interrupted something, and they're like, "What? Hey, 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 hey! We were we were having a conversation here. Either that, or they were making out. Yeah. And like Aquaman suddenly turns into like the the jock from every like eighties romantic comedy that gets interrupted while making out with a girl. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Superboy's like here are where I keep the dolls of myself <laughs> exactly he's got the best action figure set yeah and Green the, Lantern looks like he's having trouble keeping his mask on and Lois Lane looks elderly <laughs> and, you even when you're ancient Lois yes uh, amaze your friends with magic oh good lord yeah. <laughs> and 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 the original GI Joe, TV's new TV's hero. new hero. GI Joe, so real he almost seems alive. Most amazing soldier you ever played with. Twenty one movable parts. Yeah, uh, you have action soldier, action pilot, action marine, and action sailor. I'm actually kind of fascinated with this. They um, years ago they put out a GI Joe trading card set mm-hmm. that celebrated the entire history so they had a lot of the old toys on it and that was my first experience really looking at it yeah and i'm and i think about it and and i've seen like like some of the dvds have had like the old 60s commercials for the toys Uh uh-huh and i'm like the the, is of that time it was just like you know us walking in and seeing like the new gi joes or the new transformers or superpowers or whatever that was it in the 60s so I can never, I can never make fun of this kind of stuff because I remember, hey, it was from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Yeah, interesting. Now, we certainly can at least make a little bit of fun on the out of the back page because I looked at the phrase 
Buddy learns the secret. <laughs> in Jimmy's room. <laughs> and is is that Gordon jump behind the th- counter in the third panel? So. I believe so. <sighs> I don't know why my wa- my mind went right to that. It's it's an Aurora model motoring kit mm-hmm. where you can build a a car and then I think again put them on a track. I guess racing tracks were a slot big car thing. racing. Yeah, is that what it's called? I think there, so. there, there was a place, and I don't know if it's still open, but it was open for the longest time when I moved down here. That was a slot car racing store. Interesting. Where you could go and buy stuff, but he would hold tournaments. Huh. And I was fascinated by that in the same way you're fascinated by like dog shows. It's not something you'd ever participate in, but it's just, wow, that's a competition for somebody. Yeah. So, uh, I. <laughs> This is really exciting. <laughs> so I make fun of it, and then I make fun of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm I know. Jerk, but oh, yeah. No, it's just you know, mo- it, this was another thing. Model kits were huge. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, at one point, they're still. I mean, they're still around. You just don't. I don't see a whole lot of people talking about it. I'm sure if I did a Google search, yeah, message board or something. Yeah, there's still hobby shops around here and there. And hey, it's. It's fun to make fun of these, and and but there there's just vintage ads like this are always fascinating too because, you know, we're only 15 years away here from O.J. Simpson advertising yeah. dingo boots, dingo boots, and uh, something else too. And, and then and then the ads. I think up until about the mid 90s, comics ads are just fun to look at. You know, where you start to get into. Uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, in those American comics ads, where everything's mm-hmm. hot. Then, when you start to actually get into almost like a magazine type of ad in the late '90s, and then into the 2000s, they don't, they aren't as fun anymore. Well, it, it, it's funny because a couple of years ago, I sat through and read like the first 30 issues of the Mike Grell written Green Arrow series from the late '80s. Yes, and for like the first 20 issues, the ads. The, all the house ads were just amazing. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, when it went towards the new format era, the ads completely changed. And suddenly, instead of like a, you know, the, the new Dr. Fate series yeah. or something like that, it's a Columbia Record House ad. There were a lot of those in in 90s new format books. Like, you know, here's the new... Alice in Chains CD. Or Alice something. in Chains, yeah. uh, like like, and and it was always like horror films too. Like I remember Shocker, Doctor Giggles, uh, Doctor Giggles, and that type of thing. Like just being like like that's what that's what they they advertised in the proto and then the out and out Vertigo books. Yeah, uh, and it's funny when you when you go into like 1995. And this happened when when Thomas DJ and I were going through Underworld Unleashed. Mm-hmm. There would be like Superman, the Batman titles and all that, where you had the, you know, the American Eagle ads and, uh, you know, with the hot comics and, you know, like it was Nintendo or whatever, Sega or, you know, basketball cards. But then like every once in a while you hit the, the book that they were trying to sell to a different audience and you see like the, um, what was that? What was that group that did one fierce beer coaster it was their second album. Um, they did House the, of Pain? 
No, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. Oh, the Bloodhound Gang. The blood. It was like their first album when Daddy Long Legs. Yeah, was yeah, still yeah, 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 yeah. Like I saw an ad for that, and I went, "Holy crap!" In a comic book. Yeah. Really. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, um, thank you for coming on and doing. Oh, this. thanks this for having fun. me. Yeah. Um, before I before I go to commercial, uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Ah, uh, well, views from the long box at viewsfromthelongbox.com. Um, I've been uh, kicking out some new episodes of that show, not as frequently as I want to, but it happens. Uh, Jeffrey and I have been going through fits and starts on From Crisis to Crisis, uh, which you can find at Fortress Place, the Superman homepage. Uh, and then there's Tales of the JSA. Tales of the JSA presents Crisis on Infinite Earths and Comics Monthly Monday over at Two True Freaks. And I've even managed to squeeze a few Bailey's Batman podcasts out recently, uh, which, which led to one of the funniest tweets I have received is like, oh, this thing's still a thing? <laughs> I forgot. Thank that you. Was... Thank you, Ryan I... Daly. <laughs> besides if you're not listening to ryan daly's secret origins podcast you are missing out on one of the best new shows out there it is a good show it's a very good here show. i am pimping out somebody else's show that's of how course. much i think of myself <laughs> well thanks again for coming on and uh, we will be right back where i'm going to take a leap into the 1980s so stick around superman captain marvel Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arian. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Only at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back again. So you go through the 1970s and there is some stuff, notably plop things, but th there's a real darkness to a lot of the 1970s, um, especially throughout the Bronze Age. Uh, uh, things do lighten up in the 1980s a little bit. And while I do have a humor comic from the 1980s, I'm not going to do a full summary of it because I've already got plenty of stuff to cover. And honestly, writing a synopsis of Ambush Book Number 4 is damn near impossible. And I mean that as a compliment. It is just an insane, wacky comic that you really just need to track down for yourself. The first half of the book is all about how Scabbard, the villain from the Robert Lauren Fleming book Thriller, is rampaging through New York, 
apparently lost. Uh, at one point, he screams about not being able to find someone to give him directions, and then after taking on Ambush Bug in a segment drawn to look like it was done by a little kid, Scabbard realizes that he's in the wrong book, and he just walks away, leaving blank pages in his wake in a way that's very much like what we would see in, say, like, Burn, John Byrne's She-Hulk, Sensational She-Hulk at times. The comic then goes on a story about Ambush Bug fighting his abandoned socks and there's a bonus pinup of starfire taking her top off and asking are you sure marv said this was okay mr bug and ambush bug replying trust me sweetheart and arch your back yeah that's it uh keith giffen would do an ambush book series and specials a few times in the 80s and, and in 1992 um and uh the 1992 one is called the ambush bug nothing special and uh the cover is him sitting a bunch of cardboard boxes and he says it says hungry homeless hungry have the hiccups please help can you spug, can you spare 250 for an out of a work comic book writer and it's him going around the dc universe interviewing with various people uh for various for a job and this came out right around the time the same summer as the eclipse of the darkness within um crossover so there's a little bit of a send-up of that uh, there are appearances by various dc characters including sandman and death which is rare outside of the sandman comics um the sandman uh the sandman portion says um he, he goes he, he's trying to get uh he's trying to get a job or something and then the sandman just uh he says uh he, he shows up he he uh, there's a recurring gag where where he gets everybody right after they get out of the bathroom um, and uh, and um, and the salmon Morpheus asks him what he's doing here, and he's dressed up as the old, you know, uh, the old Jack Kirby era salmon. He's like, you know, he's like, you know, you have you have no sense of humor, and and Morpheus says, I reject the notion that I lack humor, and he's like, oh well, yeah, do something funny. He says the thing is done, and then he brings Ambush back back to reality all tarred and feathered and he says i gotta admit the guy definitely has possibilities there's a then there's an appearance by lobo and and just kind of a um a little bit of of f- fun a sequence drawn to look like like manga and um just all sorts of of weirdness where there's also a plot line where there's this photostatted head of julius schwartz that is essentially the villain of the story and he's like fighting him and then there's um there's all these jokes that are swipes at image at one point um there's a splash page uh bug number one where he's made to look like basically kind of like the savage dragon uh where it's made to look like a comic book character it says big first issue get on the ground floor it's now or never by issue, by issue three you'll be completely lost and he's screaming out of my way. I have to appear on seven covers at the same time. And it says seven covers, 14 trading cards, 22 holograms, 28 staples, absolutely no story or characterization whatsoever. And the appearance by death is like two or th- it's, it's about two pages. And, um, you know, he's not on her list. And it's just this whole inside joke meta meta funny thing and um it's actually i got it for 50 cents it's worth picking up because one of the things about the 90s is that um it's generally regarded as humorless 
And, okay, it's not humorless. Hack popular culture, quote, journalists who don't do their research call the 90s humorless. But, you know, across quite a number of companies, the 90s had their moments of lightheartedness. You know, this is one example. And then you have, like, the old Marvel year in review specials and... Um, DC would eventually launch the Looney Tunes comic. And and this is around the time they also bought Mad Magazine. So, you know, comic companies were not above publishing humor. Now, I'm not going to talk about Mad uh, beyond this mention because it's a publication that made a name for itself decades before it was acquired by DC. And I also wanted to do a separate Mad Magazine episode of Pop Culture Affidavit somewhere along the line anyway. So what I am going to do, just to bring us up to a modern age and close us out for this episode is to look at a brand new humor offering from DC Comics that's not Looney Tunes or Scooby-Doo. It involves superheroes, but it attempts to be irreverent at the same time. And cover dated September 2015, it's Bizarro number 2. So the credits on America Part 5 are inaccurately recalled by Bizarro and vaguely told to Heath Carson, writer, and Gustavo Duarte, artist-slash-cover artist, on a cell phone in the middle of a thunderstorm. Guest artists, Kelly Jones and Michelle Madsen, and Francis Manipool. Colors by Pete Pantazis. Letters by Tom Napolitano. The assistant editor is Andrew Mavino, and group editor is Eddie Berganza. The cover shows two main char- our two main characters, Bizarro and Jimmy Olsen, dressed up as Batman and Robin, and a disapproving Batman looms behind them. We open with a recap that was drawn on the placemat from a big belly burger, and Bizarro and Jimmy tell us that they were on a road trip to Canada when Jimmy's car broke down in Smallville. Now they find themselves combating King Tut, who has the entire town in his thrall. His evil scheme? Well, he's a used car salesman, and he's trying—he's hypnotizing everyone in Smallville to buy crappy cars so he can finance their purchases with high interest rates. Bizarro and Jimmy eventually thwart King Tut by using super hypnosis to make Tut think he is a chicken. His daughter awards the pair with thanks and a new car, but then secretly vows to take them down as Queen Tut. Bizarro and Jimmy buy provisions from a Lexmart and hit the road where they bump into the Riddler and two batarangs thrown by Kelly Jones drawn Batman, bounce right off Bizarro's head. They head to Central City and Bizarro accidentally clotheslines the Flash while gesturing as he and Jimmy are trying to find the Flash Museum. And we see through pictures that Jimmy has been taking throughout the trip that they stop in Starling City, Chicago, Iron Heights Penitentiary, and a swamp in Louisiana. And they even get a picture with Gorilla Grodden in an undisclosed location. Now, all the while, they have been followed by two federal agents. Jimmy notices this, and Bizarro uses heat breath to throw them off. Bizarro then flees the car to Old Gold Gulch, a ghost town where they run into Chastity Hex and come to realize that the ghost town they're in actually has ghosts. And our next issue box says Goblins, Ghosts, Parrots, and the Knockdown, Drag Out, Knuckle Bustin' Brawl. You can you am never knew you am wanted. Bizarro versus El Papagayo. I picked this up on a whim, and it was fun. In fact, I'm gonna go back and, and buy uh, issue two's the only one that's out at the moment I'm recording this. Or that they've gotten as far as issue two is at the moment I'm recording this, so I'm gonna go back and buy issue one. Bizarro's been always a bit of a comical villain. Jimmy Olsen is probably the best straight man in this situation because he doesn't have to take him down. Like Superman would be a good straight man for Bizarro, but I don't think it would have worked as, as well as it does here. And I love the use of of uh, King Tut and his plot as an underhanded used car salesman. It's just genius. 
the comic's silly enough for kids. It is rated E. It has some nice touches for adult comic fans without trying to be smarter than it has to be. And it's only a six-issue mini, so um, I'm probably going to collect and buy the whole thing. But it is worth picking up on a whim, and it was it was really, really fun. And I know I didn't do a huge uh, in-depth critical analysis of it, but it just does seem there to... Just, the comic doesn't really warrant that. It's like, oh, hey, here, here's a bunch of jokes uh, with these two characters, and we're not taking ourselves as seriously. Um, although I do love the way they drew it. They had, Kelly, they had Kelly Jones draw a Batman in there to throw batarangs at Bizarro, and they bounce off his head because it's kind of a commentary on how Batman is taken way too seriously these days. And so that was that was kind of fun. So I'm sold on this, and I would recommend picking this up. And that is it for comedy. Uh, next up, licensed properties, which will feature a bevy of guest stars. If I play it all right, that is. So until then, thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.